I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, why is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that we would see the signs of our Savior that you have placed in your word. That we would see all the ways that you have pointed to and prepared the way for the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How the gospel shines in the Old Testament, pointing us forward. Lord, would you use this word to increase our awe of our Savior, to increase our gratitude for this indescribable gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus was just over a month old, Mary and Joseph took him on his first ever trip to Jerusalem. And they were making this trip because they were faithful, law-abiding Israelites, and they knew what the scripture said regarding what a family of Israelites is to do with their firstborn son. It said way back in Exodus, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, shall be consecrated to the Lord. So this, this act of consecrating the firstborn son to the Lord was an act of acknowledging that the next generation, the very son who would kind of carry on the family name, was a gift from the Lord who himself was faithful to a thousand generations. And then this gift from the Lord was to be stewarded and dedicated to the Lord as a way of saying, we will raise this next generation, the one who will carry on our name in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that the faith which you are faithful to, passes from one generation to the next. So here they are going to Jerusalem, consecrating their firstborn son, and never had this act of consecrating a firstborn son to the Lord been so appropriate and filled with so much significance. And then in this trip, they also took the opportunity to be law-abiding, faithful Israelites 
who offered a sacrifice according to the requirements of the law. That the sacrifices were there to remind people that we are sinners who need a covering, that, that something must die in order for us to live. And yet Mary and Joseph being too poor to afford the pricey sacrifice of an unblemished lamb had to settle for the most cost-effective alternative of a pair of turtle doves. And the irony that while they couldn't afford to provide a lamb at the sacrifice, and yet they were carrying the very lamb of God with them to take away the sins of the world, would not hit them until a much later date. And as they were going about their business as faithful Israelites, little did they know that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And Simeon was eagerly anticipating their arrival, even though he didn't know it. When Luke describes Simeon in chapter 2 of his gospel, he describes Simeon as a faithful and devout man who was eagerly waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for all the promises to come to pass, all of God's provision for a redeemer, a savior, a king, to come to pass and comfort Israel and give them peace. When we think of the coming of Christ, we often focus throughout the Gospels on his rejection more than we do his reception, right? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And that is true. And yet, there were glorious exceptions to the rejection of Jesus. There were men, like Simeon, who had a hopeful expectation that the God who promised would be faithful, that he would fulfill his word and act to complete his promises and bring them to pass. And Simeon knew this because he knew his Bible. Simeon's Bible was the Old Testament. He knew that the Old Testament had a plethora of promises that were waiting to be fulfilled. He knew that it had prophecies that were still to be accomplished. He knew that the Old Testament had established offices like a king, like a priest, like a prophet, that were to this very day vacant and were waiting for someone to fulfill it perfectly and eternally. In other words, Simeon was waiting for the comfort of Israel because he knew that the Old Testament was an unfinished story that was demanding a grand conclusion, and he wanted to see that conclusion in his own day. How did he know this? Well, we know this because Simeon, when he first lays eyes on Jesus, when he first sees that baby being carried by Mary and Joseph into the temple, he realizes that all his days of waiting for the comfort of Israel are over. They've come to an end. All of his Old Testament-filled expectations in his heart are now being fulfilled as he sees Jesus. And when he takes Jesus up into his arms, he makes this declaration in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. In other words, in this monumental moment between Simeon and holding Jesus in his arms, Simeon is recalling to mind all the promises, all the prophecies, all the shadows and types and events of the Old Testament. And he has that in his mind and he has Jesus in his arms and he puts the two things together. And he says, this is the one we've been waiting for. It was all about him all along. He's finally here. He does not have to wait for comfort anymore. In fact, he is holding the comfort of Israel in his very hands in the temple. And the reason I bring this up is because in these weeks leading up to Christmas, what I want to do is I want us to see the Savior like Simeon did. 
I want us to marvel at Jesus the way Simeon did with the knowledge of the Old Testament in his mind and Jesus in his arms. So I want us to look at how does the Old Testament prepare us for and point the way to Jesus. So throughout the Old Testament, I want us to see that when God makes promises, when he implements all these kind of strange and foreign practices to us, when he raises up people like prophets, priests, and kings, when he establishes places like Jerusalem and the temple, all of that was divinely designed by the Lord to lead us to the birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem named Jesus. And so the picture I want us to have of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament was divinely authored by God to function like the star that rose in the east that led three wise men to a stable in Bethlehem. That when they followed that star, rightly and properly, it brought them to the very place the Savior was. In the same way, the Old Testament is like that light that begins to rise in the sky and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter as the story of the Old Testament unfolds. And when we follow it faithfully and rightly, it brings us to a stable in Bethlehem where a baby is born. It all leads to and points to Jesus. So what better place to start than by looking at how the very first promise ever recorded in scripture points us to the savior that we celebrate at Christmas. So Genesis 3.15 is where I wanna focus because Genesis 3.15 is the first glimmer of light that a savior is coming. So if you've ever gotten up really early in the morning, well, it's still pitch black outside and you've waited to see the sunrise, then you know what it's like to, to see daybreak and catch that first glimpse of light that shines in the sky, kind of piercing the darkness. That's what Genesis 3.15 is in the Bible. Genesis 3.15 is the first glimmer of the light of the gospel shining in the sky of the Old Testament. And the rest of the story of the Bible is like watching that light in the sky grow progressively brighter and more illuminated until finally we come to the gospels and the sun shines its brightest at noonday when Jesus is born and does his work and accomplishes what he came to accomplish. Well, before we unpack and trace out that promise through the Bible, we have to understand why did God need to make this promise in the first place? Why was this promise made? What was it made in response to? Because promises are always in a way associated with grace and redemption, and they're always in response to sin and rebellion. So why does God make this promise of grace and redemption? Well, the first gospel promise was spoken in response to the first act of cosmic treason. So in the Garden of Eden, there stood a tree, a specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, this is the first time we're introduced to this tree, and it's the first word in Genesis that it's spoken about this tree, and it comes from the very mouth of God. Verse 16 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the Garden of Eden is a world filled with yes. God is providing much for them. And there's only one no. God's not stingy at all. He is very generous. A world full of yes with only one no. And it comes with a very specific stipulation. Do not eat of it. And a very specific consequence. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's the first word spoken about that tree. But then when you look at Genesis 3, 4, and 5, a second word is spoken about that same tree. This time it comes from the mouth of the serpent, the crafty serpent. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman with that tree in view near it, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So there's a dilemma now in the story of Genesis. We have two voices saying two competing contradictory things about that one tree that's in the midst of the garden. The significance of this tree was not inherently about the tree itself. Okay, you have to understand, the tree was itself not toxic. It's not that the fruit was poisonous. What was significant about the tree is what it symbolized, what God placed it there to signify and picture to the people as they looked at it day by day. When you think of the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, good and evil are two opposite poles of the moral spectrum. You have good over here, you have evil over here. It's representing the moral spectrum of good and evil. Well, the only being in the universe who has the right to define what is good and what is evil is the creator, is the Lord himself. Good is what good is because God is who God is. That's the one who has the right to define it and say what it is. And then evil is what evil is because it is contrary to what God is. So the tree represents God's authority alone to define what is good and evil. He makes the definitions, he writes the dictionary. Well, along with that, God alone has the ultimate authority to give moral commands, to make moral obligations. His do's and his do nots are the ultimate authority by which we live our lives. So that's the significance of the tree. The significance of the tree is not poison, it's toxic fruit. It's the fact that it stands as a symbol of God alone as the authority in defining truth and morality, and God alone as the right as the one who has the right to make demands on how we live, what we do, and what we do not do. And yet now you have competing voices. And with these competing voices comes a dilemma, a question, a test for Adam and Eve. Whose voice will they listen to? Whose authority will they honor? And in one sense, this very dilemma, this very theme is what also runs throughout the whole of scripture. The whole of scripture is a storyline of will the people of God listen to the voice of their God? Or will they listen to the nations that surround them? Will the people of God listen to the voice of the prophets that he sends them, speaking hard truths to them that they need to hear? Or they surround themselves with false prophets who speak what their itching ears want to hear? And we can even sense this moral dilemma in our own daily lives. That when a temptation is before us, we, we have, as it were, competing voices sitting on each shoulder, right? You know, the, the cartoonish depiction of the, the angel and the devil. Temptation is before us, and the voice of the Lord is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But then we have another voice that's saying, forbidden fruit never tastes sweeter and never tastes so good. And there's always these competing voices, these moral dilemmas going on, not only in the history of scripture, but in our own daily experience. So who will they listen to? Well, we know the rest of the story. But what is the significance of the act of not listening to the voice of the Lord and giving in to the voice of the serpent? By reaching out to grab the fruit of the forbidden tree, it was not as if Adam and Eve were just grasping at a fruit. It's that they were grasping for autonomy. They were grasping at independence. They were grasping at, we will be an authority onto ourselves. We are grasping at the right to determine what is right for ourselves. You know, if there were song lyrics that could capture what was going on in the moment when Eve took and ate and then gave to Adam and he ate, picture Eve in an Elsa dress singing the frozen song, Let It Go. And you know these lyrics. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, you know, no offense to those who like Frozen, especially my three-year-old daughter, but those are the worst song lyrics that anyone could live by in the history of the world. And yet, it so wonderfully captures 
what was going on in that moment in the heart of Adam and Eve. They were grasping for autonomy. They were grasping the right to say, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. We're going to be free. Yeah, she just quoted the lyrics. (laughs) Oh boy. I have some training to do at home, okay? So by taking this fruit, by rejecting the words of the creator, by transgressing his boundaries, think of it in another way. Adam and Eve were, as it were, signing the first ever declaration of independence, right? Not, not, not the one that we know as our founding fathers, but this was the first declaration of independence where they said, as it were, we the creatures hereby declare our independence from the creator and assert our right to self-government, signed Adam and Eve. The tragic irony of this cosmic act of treason is that what they were reaching for, freedom, they did not get at all. They got quite the opposite because the sweetness of sin always leads to the bitterness of death. The sweetness of sin always leads to the bitterness of death. You're always exchanging a false promise of pleasure for the sins and miseries that really come after the eating. So what we see in the scene between the first promise and the eating of the fruit is the consequences of sin. Sin always brings shame. They realize that they're, they're naked, that their innocence is gone, and that they try to cover themselves from each other. There's no more innocence. There's now shame and guilt. Sin always brings separation. It always brings relational separation. And so what do they do? They hide from one another, and then when the Lord comes, instead of drawing near to him as they had previously, they run and they flee. They cannot get far enough away from the Lord. Sin brings shame, it brings separation, and sin always spoils what God has designed for our good. It always takes goodness and turns it into bitterness. It takes sweetness and it turns it into sorrow. Sin brings shame, it brings separation, and it spoils what God makes good. And so God's promise is, in a sense, coming true. God promised, in the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And death has come. Their innocence has died, and in its place is the deathly feeling of shame and guilt. And anyone who's been overwhelmed by a sense of shame and guilt, you know how corrosive and deadly of a feeling and emotion it is to have sitting in your hearts and in your souls. Their unhindered fellowship, by which they could draw near to God, has now died. And in its place is this deathly fear of the Lord, by which they must run and they must get as far away as they can. And in place of their fellowship and harmony with one another is a death of their own harmony and their peace that they had with one another. Because right when the Lord calls Adam to account, instead of honoring his wife, loving her, he throws her under the bus. And any man who has tried that in his own marriage knows how deathly of an act that is to do. So this is where the promise of Genesis 3.15 comes in. No sooner has Adam and Eve sinned that God speaks a word of grace. No sooner has sin entered the world that God promises a savior will enter the world. Because we asked the question, the promise was, the day you eat it, you shall surely die. That was, that was the consequence. Why did they not die right on the spot? Now, there is a death of a kind that happens, but why did they themselves still stay standing on their two feet, breathing oxygen that they were stealing from the Lord? It's because in judgment, God remembers mercy. In judgment, God remembers mercy. So Adam and Eve exercise their creaturely authority to rebel, to to grasp after autonomy. And what does God do in response? He exercises his divine authority to be gracious to whom he will be gracious, to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to these guilty people. 
the reason that they do not drop dead is because God already, even before he speaks the promise vocally so they can hear it in their own ears, he has already made a plan to fulfill this promise even before he speaks it. And it's going to be a plan that unfolds in a way that inverts what just happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, Adam and Eve said, as it were, not your will, Lord, but ours be done. And God spared Adam and Eve because he already planned to send his own son who would one day enter into a garden in agony and he would say, not my will, Father, but yours be done. In the garden, Adam and Eve took and ate in an act of cosmic rebellion and God spared them because he had already planned to fulfill his promise to send his own son who would one day be found in an upper room eating a meal with his disciples and he would have bread in his hands, be looking at them and say, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. And in the garden, Adam and Eve stood, shamed, uncovered, dead, as it were, before a tree in which they had committed an act of disobedience. And their lives were spared because one day, God had already planned to send his son who would bear our sins in his body on a tree. Already in the earliest pages of the Bible, at the onset of sin, we see the light of the gospel shining. We see the seeds of the gospel being sown that would grow into the whole story of redemption that would culminate in the giving of a savior. Already in the garden, we're hearing whispers of a coming savior. God's mercy in sparing Adam and Eve and God's gracious promise in Genesis 3.15 is the seed out of which the whole story of salvation grows. It all starts right here. This is where grace begins to grow in seed form. So look at that promise with me in verse 15 of chapter three. So God is first speaking to the serpent. He starts there and what he says, he speaks directly to the serpent, but he intends what he says to be overheard by Adam and Eve and every reader of the Bible that they might hear that this is a word of hope for them, even as he's judging the serpent. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's the first part of the promise. In the first part of the promise, God is foiling the plans of the serpent already. The serpent thought he had gained allies in his act of sedition and rebellion that he sowed in their hearts. And yet God is saying, the very people who you thought would be allied with you, out of this garden will grow a kingdom that will be in conflict with you, that will oppose you, and that will ultimately crush your kingdom. So God is promising that flowing from the garden, we're gonna see two lines, two kingdoms as it were, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, in constant conflict throughout the Bible, clashing with one another as God brings about his plan of redemption. And so the war between these kingdoms, these two lines, explains so much of the story of the Bible. For example, right after the Garden of Eden, we have the story of Cain and Abel. One sacrifice accepted, the other not, and so the other brother kills and murders his brother. What is that? It's two lines, two kingdoms in conflict at enmity with one another. It explains the story of the Exodus and why Pharaoh devises a murderous plot to kill all the male Israelite children because he's seeking to snuff out the seed of the woman that a redeemer might not come. And when you think of the story of Exodus, one thing to note is the whole story of Exodus is a picture of God raising up a redeemer who comes from a seed of a woman who is spared in the midst of that, who is used to crush the head of the serpent. Now in the story of Exodus, one thing that it doesn't mention, but there's snakes everywhere in the book of Exodus. You think of Moses and Aaron coming the first time they appear before Pharaoh. Drop the staff, turns into snakes. 
Well, Pharaoh says, well, I can do that. He calls out his magicians. They drop their staffs. They turn into snakes, but what happens? Moses' staff and the serpent it becomes devours all the other staffs. And what God is doing is he is taunting the Pharaoh. He's saying, you are a puny God and I will destroy you. It's like, if you've ever seen the Marvel movie when Hulk takes uh, that character and he bashes him back and forth and he walks away, he says, puny God. That's what the Lord is doing in that moment to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would wear a, a crown-like object and on that crown was the picture of a serpent. I mean, the main God that they worship was imaged and typified by a serpent. So how does the story of Exodus end for Pharaoh? It ends with God taking the waters of the Red Sea and literally crushing his head and destroying his army. God is crushing the head of the serpent. And this conflict promise in Genesis 3.15, it explains Elijah and the prophets of Baal, two kingdoms in conflict. It explains Daniel and the kings of Babylon, two kingdoms in conflict. It explains Haman's plot to exterminate the Jews and how God providentially raises up Esther to foil Haman's plot and to preserve his people, two kingdoms in conflict. And more significantly, this promise helps explain some of the events surrounding the birth of Christ. When Jesus is born, there's one pretend king named Herod who hears about a real king who's coming. And this pretend king doesn't want any other rivals to his throne. So what does he do? He orders the murder of all Israelite sons in Bethlehem under two years old. The only other time that shows up is in the story of Exodus and in Matthew's gospel. Because what do we have? We have the seed of the serpent trying to snuff out the seed of the woman. And it explains why during Jesus' ministry, there's such a, a massive spike in all the demonic activity that he's dealing with in his day. Because the kingdom of darkness knows that the kingdom of God has dawned and is at hand and is in an all-out assault against it. When Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders in his ministry, the ones who oppose him more than anyone who plot to murder him, he looks at them in the face and in no uncertain terms says, you are of your father, the devil, and you are doing your, the will of your father. He calls them seeds of the serpent because he is the seed of the woman. And this promise of two kingdoms in conflict explains one of the glorious statements of the gospel that Paul gives us in Colossians. Speaking to believers, he said, God has delivered you out of the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The birth of Jesus is the seed of the woman coming on a rescue mission to plunder the kingdom of darkness and rescue God's people and bring them into his own kingdom. Well, let's move to the next part of the promise. The next part of the promise in Genesis 3.15 is where we see the first light of the gospel shining even brighter. So this is what it says. He, that is the seed of the woman, a singular specific seed of the woman shall bruise your head, serpent. And you, that is the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, it's somewhat obscure language, but with these words, God is promising that he is going to raise up a, a descendant, a son, a redeemer, who would deal a decisive blow to the head of the serpent who has brought about this misery through his act of sedition, even as the redeemer himself suffers greatly at the hands of the serpent. That, that's the general picture. So you can picture it like this. When you see a snake, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to kill it. Now, I, I scream like a prepubescent boy, but what you're supposed to do when you see it is crush its head. Like if you, if you have no weapons or no anything around, you need to kill the serpent. And the picture here is someone stepping upon and crushing the head of the snake, even as the snake itself sinks its veins into the heel of the foot that is crushing it. And so that's the picture that the Lord is giving here. God is promising that a redeemer will bring salvation, that he will put an end to the serpent, but this salvation will cost him much. 
he will suffer greatly. And so although they did not fully grasp it at this moment or see it, the reason that salvation will come through suffering is because someone must take their place. Someone must take the place of the shameful, the guilty, the rebel, the, the rebels, and suffer in their place to bear their judgment or else there will not be salvation. In order for the guilty to live, someone must bear the penalty of death. In order for the curse of the serpent to be crushed, someone has to take that curse upon themselves and bear it in their place. And so we don't have to wait long to get a picture of this. Look at Genesis 3.21. The first knowledge of sin that Adam and Eve have is that they're naked. Their innocence is gone. They're exposed. They, they need a covering. So they try to devise their own covering. They, they take fig leaves to try and cover themselves. And then they try to cover themselves from God. They try to hide. They know that their sin needs a covering. And yet the one they make is totally inadequate. And humanity has been trying to do that ever since. How do we find a covering for us? Is it you know, doing good? Is it you know trying to be this, trying to be that? And yet their covering that they make themselves is inadequate. And yet here's what happens in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of animal skins and clothed them. Now, it may not seem like much, but here is, as it were, the first gospel sermon in picture form. This verse gives us a picture of the salvation of sinners. It is the first gospel preached by the Lord, not in words, but in a picture and in action. God was setting forth the way by which the shame and guilt of sin could be covered and how fellowship between a holy creator and sinful people could once again be reconciled and restored. It was the initial display of the truth that we hear ringing throughout the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without someone covering for us in their death, there is no covering for sin. And so this is the blessed illustration of the gospel principle of a substitute, someone who would take our place. It's the innocent dying instead of the guilty. And so the Lord God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of animal skins. And in order to obtain this, an animal had to die. Life had to be taken. Blood had to be shed. And this is the way that the gracious covering for sin is going to be provided for them. Well, in the opening pages of the Old Testament, we read of the first woman taking the forbidden fruit in an act of rebellion against the Lord, bringing sin into the world. But when we turn our Bibles to the New Testament, we meet another woman named Mary, who in response to this bewildering, mystifying, life-altering news that even though she's an unwed young maiden, young virgin, she is going to bear a son. And what is her response? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. An act of rebellion, an act of humility and submission, bookending the stories of the Bible. And through her humble submission to the Lord's authority comes the true seed of the woman. His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so when, when Simeon takes up the child in his arms and says, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord, he means in part, Genesis 3.15, the long-awaited serpent-crushing seed of the woman is now in my arms. He is the Savior that will suffer as our substitute. And where do we see the crushing of the serpent and the bruising of his heel? We see it at the cross. At the cross, we see and hear the bruising of the Savior's heel as he hangs upon a cursed tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate act of curse in those words. But we also see and hear the crushing of the serpent's head upon that very same tree as he declares, it is finished. 
Righteousness is provided. Guilt is taken away. He has silenced the mouth of the accuser. He has taken away all of his lethal weapons against us by dying for our sin. And so the Old Testament opens with man trying to take God's place and claim authority that belongs to God alone. That's how it opens. But praise the Lord, the New Testament opens with God coming to take the place of man and bear man's penalties in man's place, even though it's not his. That is what this promise points us to in the storyline of scripture leading us to Bethlehem when the baby is born. His name is Jesus for he will save his people from his sins because he has come to fulfill Genesis 3.15. He will crush the head of the serpent even as his heel is bruised. What an indescribable gift we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your beloved son that you did not spare him so that you might spare us that we have the innocent for the guilty the one who is sinless for the shameful lord may we afresh see what this season of christmas points to that you are a god who is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you are faithful to every one of your promises because they are all yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, in response to this word, we've heard about our faithful God and his son who fulfills his promises. Let's turn to page nine and 10 and let's sing about some of these promises that the people of Israel anticipate as we stand together and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel.